Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I just had such a pleasure talking with Daniela Bleichmar about her very um, recently published new book, Visible Empire, Botanical Expeditions, and Visual Culture in the Hispanic Enlightenment. That came out with the University of Chicago Press in this magnificent, beautiful color volume with an incredibly bright, awesome orange cover in 2012. Now, this is a book that, as you'll uh, hear from the course of our interview, speaks to many different communities at once. It's a book for historians of science. It's a book for people interested in empire. It's a book for art historians. It does many, many things at the same time in the course of an argument about visuality, about visual epistemology, about visual history and the possibilities for doing history with images, of images, by images, that's uh, extraordinarily well argued and, and very elegantly written as well. Now, this is a book that um, has much more than we had time to talk about in the course of our interview. It talks about um, some really wonderfully evocative uh, productions of botanical images from a series of Spanish expeditions to the New World. It talks about um, contemporary kinds of images that were produced in a very different context that also were concerned with illustrating fruits and peoples of the new world. It talks about also the kinds of methodological um, methodological insights that can come from a process where we're trying to take visual representations and images and observations seriously, not merely as a way of illustrating text, but really as a crucial part of the text itself. It's a beautiful book. It's a very stimulating book. um, And I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Daniela. Hi, Carla. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Daniela Bleichmar about her recent book, Visible Empire, Botanical Expeditions and Visual Culture in the Hispanic Enlightenment. Now, this is a a gorgeous book. It's a fascinating book, and it's a book that is among the most clearly and consistently argued that I've read in some time. So congratulations, Daniela, and thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Oh, no, thank you so much. I'm delighted to talk about the book. So, Daniela, could you start us off by saying a little bit about how you came to work on the book? What brought you into the history of science and visual culture in the first place? Okay. Um, Well, I started in the history of science and visual culture long before I started working on this. I was a a very unhappy biochemistry major in college, uh, doing terribly in the lab and uh, very confused as to uh, what I would do. And then I found out that there was this field called history of science, which was, um, you know, just a perfect fit. It was all the kinds of questions that I was interested in, uh, about epistemology, about history, uh, about how science works and has worked differently at different points, uh, in time and in different, uh, cultural and geographical contexts. Uh, um, so, so I found the history of science as an undergraduate and, uh, I had always had a very strong interest, personal interest in the visual, in the arts, but I had always thought of it as something that was, uh, sort of separate from my interest in science. Uh, so I had grown up being interested both in art and in science and thinking that they were sort of completely different pursuits. And it wasn't until I discovered the history of science or, or, or fell into the history of science that I realized that this was a field that was, um, that actually made it very, uh, likely to see the connections between science and art, uh, particularly in the period that I got really fascinated by, which was the early modern period. So roughly 1500 to 1800, because at that time, there wasn't this distinction that we have today between science and art. They were seen as uh, very, very uh, much linked 
modes of exploring the world, of creating, of uh, producing. Um, so in a way, I just I just found a glove that fit me perfectly uh, in the history of science and its openness to questions uh, that interested me that had to do with um, how images work, how uh, making an image is a way of knowing the world, how images work in connections to objects and to words, uh, and also about travel and cultural contact, which is also something that had personally interested me, um, you know, from from very, very early on. And, and that was part of my personal experience. And um, this question about the um, universality of science, that was something that history of science was very much probing, you know, why are truths truth everywhere or are they uh does you know nature work this same if we think that nature works the same everywhere then why are there different ways of understanding it and are all and are different ways uh valid those were also questions that interested me so um history of science allowed me to to sort of naturally connect things that until then i had thought were very different which were art science and cultural contact Right. Now, the book um, that we're talking about today, this, this gorgeous book, it's about 12,000 images. This is how the you start the book off, which is kind of an amazing number to get our heads around, and we'll, we'll come back to that. And these images were created in the 18th century, and specifically between the late 1770s and the early 1800s, and they depict plants from across the Spanish Empire outside Europe. The book um, uses these images, these images assembled by Spanish natural history expeditions, to look at connections among what we might think of as different fields, natural history, visual culture, and empire in the 18th century Hispanic world. So knowing that, can you say a little bit about what brought you to this topic in particular? How did you move from this larger set of interests in visuality, history of science, culture, to this particular um, topic? Yes, uh, it, it's a good question because it's not obvious. Because when I started studying the history of science, uh, there was nothing in any of my classes about science in the Hispanic world. And I'm originally from Latin America. Uh, my, my native language is Spanish. And everything that I read in all my undergraduate classes was mostly about Europe. Uh, we did have one week where we uh, read about science in China. Um, you know, <laughs> yes, one week in three years. Um, but it was mostly about Europe. And I didn't see anything wrong with that. I thought, like, that's where science happened. Um, basically, I uh, was interested in natural, in the natural sciences. Uh, I was interested in biology I uh, was interested in museums and images and so started reading about cabinets of curiosities and also about uh, scientific expeditions. And then one of my professors said, you know, uh, in the late 18th century, uh, Carl Linnaeus, who is, you know, one of the main figures in uh, 18th century natural science in Europe, had this correspondence in Latin America and they were sending him stuff. They were sending him images. They were sending him dried plants. And we don't know all that much about them. And the people who have really looked at them have written about this in Spanish, uh, which for the most part, uh, Anglophone scholars were not reading. Uh, so, so these professors said, you know, you might find that interesting and I started reading about these Spanish expeditions and I got completely fascinated because on the one hand, they looked so similar to what I had studied in my classes uh, about how European science worked. And on the other hand, they look very, very, very different. Um, so they were just this puzzle for me. And... The other thing that got me hooked, and I think this is really what made me want to write a dissertation first and then a book about them, is the 12,000 images um, for various reasons. First of all, I wanted to work on a project in which images were central to science. They weren't sort of a byproduct. They weren't an afterthought. There weren't some you know, nice illustrations that get thrown 
in by the publisher at the very end, but they were really, really at the core of how science was producing knowledge. And I also was interested methodologically as a historian, what can I do with a visual archive? Because as a historian, I had been trained to work with texts primarily. So uh, I had learned about primary sources and secondary sources. I had uh, learned about reading the words that had been written in the period that I was studying and trying to use different documents to construct a story, uh, to build it like a puzzle piece by piece. Uh, but I didn't know how to do that with images. And I looked at what people who work with images were doing, uh, mostly art historians, and they were doing something slightly different, which is they were telling stories with images about the images. But I wanted to do something slightly different, which was use images as historical sources. And so when I found an archive of 12,000 images uh, that had received very little attention and that were in conversation with what um, we know about 18th century science, but also uh, seemed to bring in, you know, some very different um, aspects into play and where I could really use images as documents as as historical sources and really use the project to learn about how to use images and what I could and could not do with images, then it just seemed like, you know, a fascinating, um, a fascinating um, sort of series of case studies that had implications that went beyond uh, just telling the story of the expeditions, but that had methodological implications and historiographical implications as well. Now, you, you just mentioned that the book started off as a dissertation. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that transformation? What was the transition from dissertation to book like for you? Were there any major surprises, major changes, anything that sticks out in your mind as being particularly notable about the process? Well, I guess the first thing I'll say is that it was incredibly hard and that I'm glad that I'll never have to do that again. Um, because part of what I felt was that I wrote the same project multiple times. I first wrote it as a dissertation and then I wrote it as a book manuscript and then I revised the book manuscript very intensely um, and, and cut it by half actually um, so that I felt I wrote this one project three times and that's much too much work and effort for one book. So I hope that from now on, never again will I write the same project multiple times. Um, the other one thing that happened too is that this was written um, as a dissertation, an interdisciplinary dissertation that attempted to bring into conversation the history of science the history of the Hispanic world, so both Latin America and Spain, the history of visual culture, and the history of empire. But I was really coming from a very strong background in the history of science. My undergraduate degree was in history of science. My graduate training was in a history of science program within a history department. So I was thinking like a historian and like a historian of science. Um, and I did my best with the visual, uh, and with empire and with the Spanish Americas. And then completely by chance, without any, you know, sort of willful planning on my part, I ended up getting a job after grad school uh, as a professor of art history. And I, that really changed things for me. Uh, having to go into the classroom and teach students in our history, even though I was teaching classes that had to do with the topics I knew about, which had to do with science, with travel, with cultural contact, with books and prints. So it's not that I was all of a sudden lecturing on, on, on completely different things, but I was doing it from a different perspective and within a different discipline. And I learned a lot from teaching and from my students and from my colleagues and, and from reading more art history and more uh, visual culture. And I also read much more about the Spanish Americas uh, than I had had a chance to do 
in grad school. So basically, I feel that I got a PhD in history of science, and then I started working as an art historian, and I did, you know, an independent PhD again <laughs> by myself uh, in art history uh, in the first two or three years of teaching, where I was just reading, reading, reading all the time. And so when I wrote this book, it went from being a history of science book that hoped to also engage with visual visual studies, visual culture, with um, Hispanic uh, history or, or Latin American studies and, and Spanish history. Uh, and it really became a book that was written as much from visual studies or from Latin American studies as it was from history of science. So um, my bibliography <laughs> got sort of out of control, um, but also my perspective, you know, so for example, one very concrete difference, and I don't know if this is too much detail, but um, when I wrote the dissertation, uh, well, you know, there was like an entire central chapter that I thought was so important for me to write and then made no sense for the book whatsoever. It may have been very important for me to write, but it was not really uh, important for the book. But um, the way I had structured the dissertation, I had five chapters, if I remember correctly. And the first two chapters were about the history of the expeditions and um, the history of 18th century science. And it wasn't until the third chapter that I really started talking about the visual. And I think in a way that came from my thinking as a historian, first you tell the history of these, um, you know, series of events. Uh, then you explain them, you know, in terms of the science and the history. And then you go to whatever aspect you're focusing on, which is the visual. And then when I wrote the book, I thought, if this is a book about the visual, I can't wait until halfway through the book to start talking about images. This needs to be there from chapter one. This needs to be there from the introduction. So things that in the dissertation came much later on in the book uh, appear much earlier on. So I basically rejiggled the entire structure, which was a giant headache. Uh, and, and very, I found it very, very hard to do, uh, to restructure the, the way I was telling the story. But I did it because I thought if this is predominantly about the visual and my argument is about the visual, then that has to be there from the very beginning. Now, moving into the book itself, right in the introduction, um, you lay out some of the central concepts that are going to be crucial for um, understanding and for leading us through the cases and the argument that's going to proceed in the later chapters. So one of the things that you introduce here is a central concept um, that you use to explain why images were so important in 18th century natural history, and this is what you call visual epistemology. Now, since this notion of visual epistemology is so crucial for what you're doing in the book, um, can can you take a minute or two and or or more um, and explain that concept for our listeners? What do you mean by visual epistemology, and in what way is that important for understanding um, the context you're talking about in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so part of what happened was that I got really curious about why there were twelve thousand images. Right? There were also lots and lots of letters, of inventories, of journal entries. There was a lot of textual material. But these were scientific expeditions. Um, in the book, I talk about five different scientific expeditions. And they each, um, when I started looking at them, not individually, but as a group, what I realized was they, every single one of them had not only scientists or naturalists, as we call them, they call themselves back then, uh, but it also had artists. A lot of the materials of the day-to-day uh, sort of um, paperwork of planning an expedition and of working in an expedition had to do with the images and with the artists, how to hire artists, how much should they be paid, should they be paid less or the same as naturalists, um, how they should work together with a naturalist. Uh, when these naturalists from the different expeditions wrote to each other, they commented uh, they wrote about their artists. How is your artist doing? Is your artist good? We need to get more artists. So 
that the scientists were really obsessed with the materials, with the visual materials. And then when I look at what they produce, so as a group, these uh, five expeditions, as you mentioned, they start in uh, 1777 and they end in 1816. So they go on for several decades. Uh, they cover a very vast territory. And when you look at what they actually sent back to Madrid. When you go to the archive today, there are lots of words and there are lots of pressed plant specimens, but then there are 12,000 paintings, tempera paintings. Uh, So there's many, many more images than words or objects. So the more I thought about it, the more clear it became to me at what these expeditions were about was making pictures that the pictures were not a byproduct but they were central uh, not only as an outcome but as part of a process and I started thinking about what that might have to do with because if you read the letters of the naturalists what they say they want to do is two things they say they want to uh, find useful plants, what we call economic botany. So they want to find pepper and nutmeg and tea and coffee and, um, you know, things that, that can be natural commodities. And the other thing is what we call taxonomic botany. They are part of this Linnaean project of classifying the world, of producing these atlases or surveys or censuses of plants in a region. So if you ask them, you just, you know, get on a boat and sail across the ocean and spend five or 10 or 30 years uh, working to produce images, they probably would have said no, but that's what they did. And so I got interested in what this was all about. And I look at several things. One of the things I looked at is how naturalists were trained. How did you study to become a naturalist? How did you learn what it meant to be a naturalist. And I realized that a lot of what they did was learn to look in very specific ways, learned to look at plants, particularly in professional ways. Just like when you go to the doctor and they um, take an x-ray or do an ultrasound and you look at it and you have no idea. I mean, you know that there's stuff on that image, but you're not sure if it's good or if it's bad or what it means or which way goes up. And the doctor can look at an x-ray or an ultrasound and say, you know, and, and read it because they have this visual expertise. That's a lot of how people trained to be naturalists in the 18th century. And then when they went about their day-to-day business of doing natural history, of doing botany, what they would do is they would take illustrated books with them. So these guys would get on ships to sail very far across, across the ocean for years. And what they wanted to take with them were illustrated books. And then as they walked across the Andes, in Peru, in Chile, in Mexico, in Alaska, in Australia, they went everywhere. What they did as they walked around is they would take books with them and they would look at plants and they would look at books and they would try to find what are the five differences. You know, it's like those old uh, um, sort of, um, you know, games where there's two pictures published and it's like, can you spot the differences? They were trying to do that between the actual plant and the um, the illustrated book. And then they would ask the artist to make an image. And then that image would be sent back to Europe and used uh, in connection to the dried specimen to produce an engraving that then would circulate uh, and uh, count as the discovery of a new species. So that basically the way that they knew what they knew had to do with observation and representation. And as a historian of science, I um, knew that one of the big questions that we ask has to do with epistemology. How do people know what they know? 
And I realized that in 18th century natural history, people knew what they knew through the visual. And that's how I started thinking about this concept of visual epistemology, uh, by which I mean both observation and representation. The idea that one way of knowing the world is, is through visual practices and visual materials. Now, the first chapter takes us through the Spanish natural history expeditions and their mode of working, which encompassed, as you argue here, both visuality and utility. It situates the expeditions as part of a program of imperial science. So this is not, this is a book that's not just about sort of the visuality or this visuality in the scientific sphere, but also in the imperial sphere. And it takes us through this program of imperial science that was launched in the Hispanic world during the reigns of Charles III and IV of Spain, so about 1759 to 1808. Now, you take us in this chapter through several ways in which the Spanish expeditions were quite different in goal and in nature from contemporary British or French voyages. And one of those ways was, as you argue here, the objective of, this, of, of these expeditions was not discovery, but rediscovery. Enlightenment, as you argue here in the Hispanic world, was framed not as a new development, but as a way of restoring the empire by connecting with the past, and in particular here with the 16th century. You call this a botanical reconquista. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of a botanical reconquista, since it's so central to this chapter? Why, in what way was this so important for um, the kinds of images that you see coming out of um, this particular context? Yeah, that is so beautifully summarized and you got each other so well. It's such a such a joy as an author to be like, yes, you really understood what I was trying to do. Um, you get an A. So, <laughs> so um, part of what interested me is how the Spanish expeditions uh, are part of larger stories. Um, you know, I think that historians often talk about what they... Uh, called the so what question. Uh, you know, God knows I heard that uh, incessantly in grad school. And uh, and now, of course, I repeat it to all my grad students to their great frustration. Um, but so, you know, I was interested in these expeditions. I thought they're fascinating. They have fascinating materials. It's a tale that deserves to be told. But that is not enough. It should also um, sort of go beyond the case study and make larger points about uh, bigger questions. And two of the big questions, or maybe it's more than two, maybe it's three of the big questions. Um, one had to do with the role of the Hispanic world in science between 1500 and 1800. Because if you asked naturalists uh, in say, 1550, whether Spain was actively investigating the natural world, most European naturalists at the time would have said yes. If you ask someone 200 years later, around 1750, is Spain a big scientific player, they would have said no. They actually did say no. There was this very famous and controversial article in the Encyclopédie in that you know, famous and very important French encyclopedia. The entry on Spain, uh, written by a French author, asked, what has Spain given us? And it answered, nothing. Right? So there has been what um, has been called the, the, the black legend about how uh, Spaniards were, uh, early, in the early modern world, sort of fanatic Catholics uh, who massacred uh, uh, Amerindians and, and sort of destroyed a continent. And this was a reputation that was very heavily promoted by uh, Spain's European rivals uh, and uh, both political and confessional. But this led also to a scientific black legend, uh, which was there was no science in Spain at this time. And so I wanted to see how these expeditions played in that story about science between 1500 and 1800, which is sort of, for historians of science, a very, very important period because it's 
um, the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, not just for historians of science, for anybody who is working in history. Um, and what I found was that these expeditions in some ways looked very similar to other European projects at the time. So the Spanish were not the only ones who were sending out scientific expeditions in the late 18th century. They were not the first ones in the 18th century either. Uh, there was this intense climate of political competition where the French, the Spanish, the British were all eyeing each other nervously and seeing what each uh, uh, power was doing and uh, the sort of imperial expansion, the, the, the way in which the French and the British were uh, settling outposts uh, around the world and exploiting the natural resources uh, was something that, that the Spanish were very aware of and very nervous about. Um, and so that these expeditions were inspired by projects like James Cook's voyages. Captain Cook uh, was a direct inspiration for the expedition. So in one way, they look very much like other European expeditions. But in other ways, they look extremely different. Because whereas for the British and the French, this moment of scientific expeditions uh, and, and of imperial science was very much about newness, about expansion about going where they hadn't been before taking charge of territories that hadn't been theirs or revising the ways that they were um, addressing them uh, so that the British are interested in Australia, the French are interested in the Caribbean and in uh, the Pacific, Tahiti. Um, for the Spanish, it's not about discovery, but about rediscovery. They are going back. These expeditions are going back to the same places that have already been part of the Spanish Empire at that point for 200 or more years. So it's not about discovery. But at the same time, they are going back to the same territories, uh, but approaching them in a different way, approaching them thinking that the old Spanish uh, um, sort of interest in mineral wealth, uh, in gold and silver, uh, had to give way to an interest in what they called green gold, in, in uh, vegetable riches, not just mineral riches, uh, that these plants that they had known uh, or had been there all along, all of a sudden had to be seen with new eyes, had to be in classi had to be classified according to linear taxonomy, had to be um, um, understood as commodities, so that what they were trying to do is not discover but rediscover territories, and in this way uh, not expand the uh, empire but renew it. This was a period of grave uh, political and economic uh, um, troubles in, in Spain and the Hispanic world. And there was this idea that science and natural history in particular could be, could offer remedies for the empire, could offer uh, both through the products that it would yield, uh, new medicines, new spices, but also new riches uh, a new political control, so um, that they were very much engaged. They were engaged in a project that was quite different from the French and um, and British, and they were looking not only to the present, but also to the past. They were looking to the 16th century, which had been such a glorious moment for the Spanish Empire uh, with the reigns of Philip II and Charles, uh, Charles V, sorry, Charles V and Philip II, um, and uh, with the first scientific expeditions to the New World uh, in the 1570s and the beginning of this use of visual materials uh, as evidence, uh, which in the Spanish world doesn't start in the 18th century, but goes back all the way to the 16th century. 
um, so that when they propose the expeditions, they say, yes, this is like what Cook is doing, but this is also what Spanish physicians were doing in the 1570s, and that work was never completed. And so we have to go back and uh, finish it and reconnect to the 16th century. So this is an enlightenment that looks very different from a French enlightenment or a British enlightenment, which are very much about this idea of progress uh, and, and of uh, improvement uh, in the Spanish world, uh, you know, in a way that is sort of convoluted and perhaps a bit paradoxical, uh, the idea of improvement is not by going towards the new, but by going back towards the old and making it new, rediscovering it, reconquering it. So that's why I talk about it as a botanical reconquista. Thank you, Daniela. Now, the next chapter, and in fact, the next couple of chapters, take us through um, the ways or the kind of visual epistemology that enabled the seeing and classification and commodification that you alluded to before. It discusses um, chapter two, certainly, and, and also in some way, chapter three, discusses the ways that naturalists trained their eyes as diagnostic tools, including um, by using books, as you uh, mentioned earlier. Now, this chapter opens with a portrait of a figure who's going to be really um, integral to many of the chapters to come. And this is um, a picture of um, Jose Celestino Mutis. Now, because he's so, um, th this is a figure that listeners may not have heard of before, but he is so central to this story. Can you briefly introduce him? Yes. So um, he is, uh, as you say, very central to this story and also very unknown uh, in uh, to Anglophone listeners. Um, this is different if you go, for example, to Colombia, where he is, he's sort of like Colombia's Benjamin Franklin, right? It's from the same period. Uh, he uh, was a polymath. He was engaged. He was involved in many, many different types of activities. Uh, he was born in Spain. He trained as a physician in Spain. And then as a young man, he went to what was then called the New Kingdom of Granada or the Kingdom of New Granada, which is now sort of the northwest portion of South America. It's, it corresponds to Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador. Um, uh, and he spent the rest of his life there. So even though he was not an American, he was a Spaniard, he really became sort of naturalized, acclimatized uh, to the Americas. And there he did many, many, many different things. He was a physician, he was a botanist, uh, he taught mathematics. Uh, he is reputedly the first person to have taught Newton in uh, um, the Spanish Americas. Uh, he led this uh, natural history expedition, this botanical expedition, for three decades. Uh, it was the most productive of the expeditions. It produced almost 7,000 of the 12,000 images. And it also developed a very extensive network. So what, what I was saying is that he's important not only uh, as a historical figure, but also because of this network that he develops of naturalists and artists throughout South America. And he uh, helps to train uh, many young naturalists and young artists uh, who then go on to be involved both uh, with science and art, but also with the independence war. So they become uh, very uh, important figures in the political and cultural and scientific life uh, of South America in this period. And I was also saying that the network connected the Americas to Europe because Mutis was a correspondent of Linnaeus. He sent Linnaeus letters and plant specimens and drawings and uh, helped Linnaeus uh, sort of publish about uh, South American uh, plants. And he became so well known as the top authority on South American botany that when Alexander von Humboldt takes his own Europe, um, sorry, uh, American tour, uh, his travels uh, between 1799 and 1804, uh, he makes sure to go to Bogota, Colombia, to meet with Mutis and spends time talking to Mutis uh, and getting information from him and talks repeatedly about Mutis and about this network of collaborators in 
uh, his uh, publication. And in fact, when Humboldt publishes the botanical part uh, of his uh, um, uh, travel narrative or of his books about the Americas, it's called the Plants Equinoxial, the uh, Southern Plants, uh, he dedicates the book to Mutis as the authority on uh, South American plants. So he's a very uh, important figure, but also a very nice illustration of the particularities of this Hispanic enlightenment and how uh, much, how plugged in it is to the European enlightenment, but also how it has uh, some aspects that are very different from it. Now, you mentioned Linnaeus uh, just now, and Linnaeus is another figure who comes up. I won't ask you to talk about him, but um, he comes up in particular in this part of the book, in part because of this visual glossary that he created that lets you, or that lets us see, and that lets you talk about another one of the, it's seemingly crucial points of this book, um, not just in this chapter, but elsewhere as well, which is the importance of kind of collaboration, the importance of collectivity mm-hmm. in generating these images and in sort of in the mechanics of, and in the technologies of this kind of visual epistemology that you are describing here. I mean, you, you talk here about, and later on about the importance of long distance observation and sort of observation over distance and mention the importance of collaborative um, collaboration and also comparison, right? The sort of collaborative yeah. comparative aspects of seeing in this period and, and the ways in which it's sort of multimedia. Can you talk a little bit to that part of what you're doing in the book? Because that's another aspect of this kind of visuality that I think um, we don't often hear about um, when we think about the production of images and certainly in the history of science. Yes, thank you. That's a great observation. So, um, yeah, part of what fascinated me about this is that um, this kind of science was at once intensely local uh, because what people were doing was walking, you know, (laughs) mile by mile, uh, uh, very circumscribed territories trying to uh, make a census of all the plants that were there and especially which ones were already known and which were new. So on the one hand, it was very fine-grained, but on the other, it was very much about um, collective work because what each expedition was doing or what each naturalist was doing was a piece of a puzzle, uh, part of a conversation that extended across the world. Uh, because if you were a naturalist in Colombia or Mexico or wherever, uh, the only way to know whether a plant that you were looking at was new or had already been described was to know what every other naturalist uh, had already accounted for, whether in the Americas or Europe or Asia or Africa or the Pacific. So that somebody who was working in South America through books was in conversation and also in competition, not just conversation and collaboration, but also competition with every other naturalist everywhere else. Um, so, So that the methods were uh, uh, global and the aim was global, but a lot of the work was local. And then the work of the naturalist, uh, was also collaborative, collective and competitive with the artists because, um, many times the artist was identifying certain plants and observing them and writing botanical uh, descriptions, uh, but didn't have the skills uh, necessary to produce the botanical illustration. Uh, and so the artists came in there. And so the artists and the naturalists were working together. One of them, uh, they both handled the object. One of them produced text. The other one produced images. That the text and the images needed to uh, correspond. And so there was this constant 
act or multiple acts of comparison and collation of seeing, of looking at two things and seeing how alike, how different are they, how to make them work in concert, uh, um, how to make them part of a larger project uh, at the expedition level, then among the expeditions, then scaling up for European botany globally. So um, that this is part of what made it so hard to be a naturalist at the time, the amount of information that they had to be constantly taking into account and the constant competition with uh, other naturalists elsewhere who were working on similar projects. And then the very uh, collaborative but also tense relationships with their own artists. Uh, and there's wonderful examples of uh, materials in which uh, we see, uh, we have sketches, for example, by the artists, and then a, the naturalist notes on the same page suggesting corrections or uh, um, ask, uh, requesting changes. Uh, so there was this constant um, collaboration um, that was, uh, or a work that was very much collective and that was both collaborative and competitive and that involved different types of expertise, natural history expertise, artistic expertise, uh, different types of media, so words and objects and images and different regions of the world that were being contrasted and, and sort of uh, put in conversation with each other. And the next chapter, and I won't ask you about this in detail because um, I know th there's other things to talk about, but really looks at in detail the different modes of collaboration between naturalists and artists, collaboration in the context of a workshop, and the kinds of epistemic um, and sort of visual uh, traces that emerge out of these kinds of collaborations. And in fact, um, one of the things you're arguing in chapter four, among many other wonderful things that that chapter does, um, is sort of a way that we can understand how these collaborations, including collaborations with local administrators and nat naturalists, sort of help us challenge center-periphery models of knowledge production and help us think about these collaborations as they produce a network um, across the Spanish Empire. But because I don't want to take up a too, we've taken up a lot of your time today, what I want to do here is make sure that we um, have just a tiny little amount of time to talk about one of the most fascinating um, parts of the book and a book, uh, part of the book that looks at different kind of visual material than we've seen in previous chapters. And this is chapter five. Um, now, this is a chapter in which you're looking at a really, really interesting set of visual materials. I, I loved these materials. To argue that Spanish natural history expeditions didn't just make imperial nature visible, but also made much of the empire invisible. Now, during the same decades as the expeditions that we've been talking about were happening, there were other modes of visually representing nature that were also being used, and these focus on, rather than white space of the page, which is what we see in a lot of the botanical, um, the botanical representations, especially coming out of um, uh, also the workshop of Mutisse, we see lots of color, we see lots of background, it's a totally different visual style. So I'd love to take a moment to ask you to talk about a few of these because they're so striking. So there are a series of six miscegenation paintings from Quito, there are Costa paintings from Mexico, and there's this amazingly awesome picture of um, a painting of natural history of Peru. So. Any, um, can you just choose maybe one or two of these um, to, to talk about sort of the ways that these kinds of images differed from the kinds of images that we've been talking about earlier and why that's important in the context of um, this sort of, this context of imperial nature and also in the context of the kind of work that you're doing in the book? Yes, I'm glad you, you brought those up. So. Part of what happened was that I started with these 12,000 uh, botanical images. And at first I was very interested in what they show. And I talk about that a lot in the book about sort of the conventions of botanical illustration, how they are made and how they are used and uh, what they're good for and what they're also not good for. There's lots of things that it turns out you cannot do with an image like 
make money, which is something that they really cared about. Um, but then the more I looked at them, I sort of got obsessed not with what the images were showing, but with how much white space there is in botanical illustrations. I mean, they're sort of like, I compare botanical illustrations to mugshots, right? Because they're identity pictures. You're supposed to be able to identify this plant from this image, just like a mugshot, you're supposed to identify this person. And they're highly formulaic. And the formula is a big part of what allows for comparison. So if you don't have standardized mugshots, if you just have family portraits, well, then they're looking in different angles. They have different lighting. There's different scale. You can't really compare so well. And when you want to compare, having a standardized format is very important. So that's why botanical images look so standardized. But if you think about it, so much of the page is left blank. There's so much white space. Uh, so we see the parts of the plant that are important for Linnaean uh, classification. We see a flower and uh, a little branch and some leaves. Uh, so it's sort of like an extreme close-up. And we see the um, botanical anatomy, sorry, the floral anatomy, so we can classify the plant. But we have no idea from a botanical illustration how, you know, what the tree looks like, how big it is, what kind of landscape it is on. So that it's not just making something visible, but it's also making a lot of things invisible. And I got interested um, in that aspect, um, which which seemed very um, rich and paradoxical to me. And I also was aware, and again, this is something that I became increasingly aware of as I taught art history, of the very, very rich visual culture and, and art culture that existed in the Spanish Americas at the same time. So while you have this naturalness uh, coming from Spain uh, and uh, going through the Americas with artists, they are visiting places that have very, very rich um, art and very rich art life, art world, uh, art production. And these are images that are being produced at the exact same time in the exact same places that turn out to have a lot of similar concerns concerns with nature, concerns with uh, fertility and productivity, concerns with locality, with what's unique about uh, the, the um, natural productions of a certain place that are, that are presenting it in very, very, very different ways. And so just like in previous chapters, I was um, bringing together different kinds of historical sources, different kinds of media, and putting them in conversation with each other. Here, I wanted to bring different kinds of genres in uh, visual materials and see how they illuminated each other. Uh, so one genre that is very, very well known, uh, at least for people who work on um, <laughs> Latin American art, um, is this um, type of portraits that emerges in Mexico in the 18th century called casta paintings, uh, which are visually very, very arresting and conceptually both fascinating and incredibly problematic uh, for us today because they have to do with nature and uh, with human beings as part of nature and as part of society, and they have to do with race and with class. Um, and so they show uh, um, um, intermarriage between different uh, uh, ethnic groups uh, in the colonies. So they will show a father, a mother, and a child, and the father and the mother will be from different ethnic backgrounds, and the child will be what in... Um, uh, natural history would have been called a hybrid, a mix of these two. And then the paintings uh, correlate uh, skin color to wealth, to happiness, to social standing. And I found very, and as I said, these are very well known. They're just fascinating to look at. Um, they're, they're quite beautiful and bizarre and interesting. Um, and I found new ways to 
talk about them when I put them in the context of the expedition. And then I also thought about two other uh, types of works uh, that are not well-known. The Casta paintings are very well-known. Um, one of them, as you mentioned, is a series of six paintings made in uh, Quito, in what is now Ecuador, in 1783, that um, show six different types of human uh, of humans, uh, of local humans, again, um, focusing on their ethnicity, but also on how they are part of the landscape and how they connect to the fruits and the plants of the land. And the last is this painting that is just so mind-blowing. Um, it's painted in 1799, uh, and it represents the natural, civil, and geographical uh, history of the Kingdom of Peru. There is nothing like it that I have ever seen anywhere else. Um, and it's basically, it's a book that was written, in a, a book about natural, civil, and geographical history that was written by a bureaucrat, uh, not by a scientist, um, as part of his um, sort of promotion strategy, he wanted to get a better job. So he wrote this book about Peru. But then rather than present the book as a text, he had it painted in this huge, huge, huge painting. It's really sort of a mural size, um, showing all the different peoples and animals, um, quadrupeds, birds, insects, uh, uh, marine animals, a map, a mine of Peru, and with very, very copious text also painted uh, in the painting. So you have something that ends up being a painting, a book, a collection, a, a box. Uh, you can understand this painting in many different ways. And part of what it showed me um, is that this interest in making the empire visible and in connecting natural history to the visual was not just professional. It wasn't just naturalists who were thinking this way, who were thinking that the way to recover the empire is through natural science and the way to do natural science is through collections and through the visual, but that also administrators, imperial administrators, bureaucrats, guys who were in charge of taxes, of running mines, of um, governing small towns, uh, that they were also thinking this way. So that this was part of a Spanish way or of a Hispanic way of thinking about the empire and how to know it. Um, and I'm just really glad to have been able to um, write about this amazing painting. It's so little known and to reproduce it and to reproduce the full painting and details in the book, because I just think it deserves so much more attention than it's gotten. And it's just so bizarre and so interesting. Um, I adore it. So um, I was just really thrilled um, that in the end, 12,000 images turn out to be the tip of the iceberg and that uh, the expeditions are part of a much larger project of knowing the empire visually and that science is, uh, or that naturalists and administrators are all participating in this product. Because for um, those of us in history of science who don't think of science as something that is isolated from other worldly concerns uh, uh, that is, uh, you know, sort of removed from um, the, the, the world of politics and administration and, and, and bureaucracy and technocracy and all those kinds of things. This was just such a perfect example of how the visual was what brought all of it together. The visual was what brought science, empire, administration, the Enlightenment, uh, the 16th century um, together um, through images. Now, Daniela, this is an amazing book, and there's so much that we didn't have a chance to talk about in, in the limited time that we have. Is there anything in particular um, that you want to make sure to mention, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, um, perhaps that we didn't have a chance to talk about? 
<laughs> well, I mean, as I think you saw, I can go on and on about. <laughs> I, I I love the material. I think the material is just really amazing, and um, it was a great pleasure to be able to to share it with readers. I guess one thing that I would say, uh, as you say, we, we talked a lot, but we didn't talk about everything. Um, but one thing that I would say is that we talked a lot uh, from the perspective of the history of science. Um, and one thing that is really important to me is that uh, one of my goals in writing the book was to produce a work that would be equally interesting and engaging and challenging to historians of science, to historians of art and visual culture, to historians of empire, uh, to historians of the Hispanic world. Um, so that in a way, I feel that uh, these connections that I found so well um, established in the material are sometimes hard to... Uh, um, they, they don't exist uh, so strongly today uh, in in academia, but also in how we think about in how we think about what things come together and and what things don't. And um, as I write in the introduction, you know, any book that tries to put so many different um, conversations uh, into conversation with one another uh, will not uh, cover everything. And, uh, will not make everyone happy. I just hope I don't make everyone unhappy. Um, but I just wanted to, to, to point that out to say that, um, we've been talking about this book from the perspective of the history of science, but I also know that someone who's coming at it from art history or visual culture or somebody who's coming at it from the history of Latin America or Spain or Atlantic studies or empire, could be talking about the exact same materials and put them in different contexts and as part of uh, different conversations. And so what I hope is that um, our historians will be thinking about epistemology, which is something that they don't often do. And uh, historians of science will be thinking about the visual event, about the Hispanic world, which again is, is something that historians of science don't often do. And that each field will gain, not just from the case studies, but from uh, learning more about what other fields think is important and how other fields are approaching the very same materials. Now, now that this book is out, what's next for you? What, what project is inspiring you at the moment? Um, no, um, I am, uh, I've been working for a while on collecting. I edited a book. Uh, that came out maybe uh, two years ago or last year called Collecting Across Cultures, Material, what is it called? Material Trajectories in the Early Modern Atlantic World. And uh, it, I'm very interested in what happens as objects move from one place to another, as uh, Visible Empire uh, makes clear. But I started a new book project that I'm really uh, excited about that has to do with um, the movement of uh, manuscript, pictorial manuscripts and prints uh, from Europe to the Americas and from the Americas to Europe in the 16th and 17th century and about how um, in, in specific um, these manuscripts known as codices, um, uh, Mesoamerican pictorial manuscripts that combine a pre-Hispanic uh, tradition of pictorial writing with colonial interests and get absorbed uh, in Europe as part of sort of the birth of uh, a project of comparative cultural studies, really. Um, they get compared to Egyptian hieroglyphs, to Chinese uh, pictographs, um, so that they are uh, poured over and bring up all sorts of fascinating questions about uh, natural history, about medicine, about religion, about civilization, about what it means to write with pictures and not with words. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's th this part of the project. I mean, I think Invisible Empire, a lot of it is about production. Um, there was very little I could say in Invisible Empire about reception because we know so little about what actually happens to these images and very few people actually see them. 
And so in a way, this second project looks at an earlier period and at different types of materials, uh, but it's a lot about reception, about how images were being used in the new world to master and uh, transform and, and sort of reactivate European culture and in Europe to understand uh, uh, and, you know, more than discover, to invent uh, the new world. So um, I'm having enormous fun looking at these early 16th century manuscripts and then the uh, many, 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 many printed um, reproductions and versions of them that are made throughout the um, 16th and 17th and 18th century. Excellent. And does this include the Florentine Codex and the Codex Badianus that you talk briefly about in this book? Yes, exactly. Hey, well, thank you so much, Daniela. Thank you for taking, um, for giving us so much of your time. It's a gorgeous book. Um, congratulations, and it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. You were such a fabulous reader. I really enjoyed talking with you about the book. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.